Okay. Good morning. How are we doing? A couple things. We are continuing to do our congregational questionnaire or survey. If you didn't get a chance to do that last week, we have more. There weren't enough copies last week. This is for anyone who is involved in this church. If you've been, if you've been baptized into Christ, if you come here regularly, uh, go ahead and fill one of those out if you would be willing. I got Dustin and uh, Dylan somewhere. And so just raise your hand if you haven't filled one of those out yet. If you filled one out and didn't put your name on it, I actually can't use that. So if you want anonymity, and uh, so put your name on it, but if you want anonymity uh, that uh, I wouldn't know who you are exactly, you can just put M for member or V for visitor if you're a regular visitor, and then put your age because I'm doing some stuff with age demographics. And then six months from now, we're going to retake these, and if you happen to remember uh, if you, what your age was here now in August, that's the, that's the number you remember. And uh, we'll fill those out later and be able to compare those. Well, if you're visiting with us, we are thankful for that. Actually, there's someone here in the audience, a visitor, who knew me in the Olympia Church of Christ when I was just a little guy. I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to call her out. But she is here, and she can tell. I used to hang out with her son, and we used to get into all kinds of trouble. And uh, she is, I'm sure she has a lot of stories about me as a little kid, if you ever wanted to know. So, uh, You know it's a dangerous time of year. We are facing some tough things. We've been through you know, fires or inversions where the air quality gets really low. We have survived the season of grass seed allergies. You know, we just had a horrible time with that. But arguably, an even more dangerous time is upon us here in Eugene. It's zucchini season. And if you don't lock your windows and your doors and roll up the windows in your cars and lock it, these things just start to show up. So be careful. We are continuing our series in John, the hidden music of John's Gospel. And so we are in chapter 18, the last part of this, this wonderful Gospel. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. So we've just finished all of the sequential events that began with foot washing in John chapter 13 and go straight through with praying for his disciples in chapter 17. These are sequential events. And it was all building up to this departure Jesus had been preparing his disciples for. But the way Jesus would depart, taken from them in complete humiliation, the disciples still couldn't understand this or accept that. 
The walk across from where they were in the upper room to across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives was not, it's not really a long one. I've been there. You can see across the valley. I mean, you would be pretty winded at the time. I would anyway. Uh, this word that the NIV translates as olive grove literally means garden. And the fact that Jesus and his disciples go into it and later on Jesus comes out of it denotes that this is probably a walled garden. Mark calls this place Gethsemane. Gethsemane translated means oil press. So it was a garden, walled garden probably, with olive trees in it and a press. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. What is likely going on here is that this garden area was made available to Jesus by a, a benefactor that would allow Jesus and his disciples to use this garden area as a place to hang out, a place of safety, a place of rest away from crowds and the leaders who wanted Jesus dead. See, even Jesus had his retreats. And this garden retreat was so regular that Judas knew to lead the officials and the soldiers to this place. From the Greek word used here, these soldiers were probably not Jewish soldiers, but an attachment or cohort of Roman auxiliaries. The Roman auxiliary troops were normally stationed in Caesarea on the coast of Israel, on the Mediterranean Sea. But during feast days like Passover, when the population of Jerusalem would swell, these troops would be moved into the fortress of Antonia, northwest, look, looking over the temple complex. And this was to allow the Romans to more effectively police the population and be able to respond rapidly to any kind of disturbance. And so when the officials of the high priest go out to arrest and find this troublemaker, it is an issue of interest to the Roman authorities, and they send soldiers. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. All four Gospels make the point that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Jesus is not unaware of his adversary's plans. He never loses control of the situation. Even when things move past theoretic, theoretical possibility of danger, imminent danger to himself, into concrete physical action against him, Jesus never wavers in his trust of God the Father. You see, for most of us, our faith has never been tested this way. Most of us have never been forced to put it all on the line for Jesus like this. 
And so for a lot of us Christians, what we do in church, sometimes it just feels kind of theoretical. Sometimes it feels disconnected from our real day-to-day lives. We have our nice thoughts here in this place, but a lot of us have not figured out how to translate our faith in Jesus into real-life results. Real-life results that change everything. You see, for us, this is not an information problem. I think everyone in this room, we are already educated way beyond our level of obedience. It's not an information deficit. It's not even a problem with our programs. Although we want to have good programs and we're going to get better programs as this church, we learned how to love each other and work better together. In the end, untested and lukewarm faith It's not an education problem. It's not a program problem. It is a heart problem. And it betrays a deficit of love. So when real life threats come our way, and they will come your way, you know why we don't act like Jesus? It's because we don't trust like Jesus. We don't react to the threats that come our way Because we don't trust God the Father like Jesus trusted God the Father. This is something that we have to learn. This is the process of our sanctification. You see, it's a whole lot easier to act like Jesus than to react like Jesus. I can come here, I can put on a good face, I can smile, I can shake the hands, I can do the the church thing. I speak great Christianese. But what was going on in the car ride on the way here? What was going on in your house? What was going on last night? What do you do when someone threatens you, makes you feel unsafe, makes you feel uncomfortable? It's easier to act like Jesus. It's harder to react like Jesus in love, in love. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Here in 18.6, again, John 18.6, we find Jesus using the words, I am to answer their questions. But in the hidden music of John's Gospel, this Jesus uses this I am phrase again and again and again to point to his divinity. The title I am was reserved for God alone. But Jesus has taken on this title repeatedly in John. So just to, uh, by way of reminder, I pulled a few of those out. I think there are more. This is just my short list I came up with. In chapter 6, verse 20, he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. It's hidden a little bit in the English, but it's the same in Greek. It is I. I am. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Chapter 8, verse 24, I told you 
that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. 8.28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. Verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And then chapter 13, 19, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. This play on words that John uses continually in the gospel, and it reveals the divinity and identity of Jesus Christ. You see, if the claims that Jesus is making about himself are true, if Jesus really is the Son of God, the events that are taking place right now, it's not just the hinge of human history. It's the hinge of all reality. If Jesus really is who he claims to be, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the events that are taking place with his life and now his upcoming death, it's the crucible or the crux of all human history. See, if Jesus really is God, what's going on here? Is God who is hidden, hidden in Jesus in the garden, if what's going on here, Jesus really is God, then God who is hidden, he comes out and reveals himself to people who want to harm him and kill him. Isn't that an interesting thought? The mystery of this is kind of mind-boggling to me. God incarnate revealing himself to his adversaries. Not even to judge them or harm them. Revealing himself to his adversaries out of love with full knowledge of their evil intentions toward him. And I'm not sure exactly how to interpret that they drew back and fell to the ground, but I can imagine that if I were in some kind of law enforcement, if I were serving a bounty on someone or I was finding someone trying to arrest them for a crime, if I were doing that and the guy I'm looking for walks up and gets in my face and says, I'm the guy, I would be taken back a little bit. I might even trip a little bit and fall down on the ground. I don't know. I can just imagine that, though. It's not the way criminals typically act. You know, but there's spiritual realities going on. Spiritual realities can have repercussions in a physical world. If Jesus really is God in the flesh, it's not a big stretch to imagine that the disclosure of his identity as God produced a physiological response in the people around him. No doubt their bodies reacted more than their minds even knew the truth of the situation. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, Jesus whose name actually means, it's a form of Yeshua or Joshua, Isa in Arabic. Uh, which means um, deliverer or rescuer. So even the I am title is tied to the rescuer coming from Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. 
If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those who you gave me. Even at threat of his own life, his concern is not so much for himself, but for his disciples. I'm the one you're looking for. Leave them alone. Even this willingness to surrender himself to these authorities is an act of love for his disciples. And it fulfills prophecy. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So a couple of things here. First, Peter waving around that sword. It betrays his ignorance about what Jesus was actually doing as well as his ignorance to what the kingdom of God is really like. Peter had his own ideas about the role of Messiah, and him being arrested and humiliated did not fit in with Peter's understanding or his agenda. There's a whole sermon right there for us. Our God and our Lord, Jesus, they they don't often act ways that we can put in a box or predict or control. And that's our learning process for us too. Learning to understand and love God as He truly is. Not our imagination of God, of what we think God should be like. So, the second thing that John gives us this detail here of this servant's name This guy who got his ear cut off, this is a historically verifiable event that people could go and check out. We got the guy's name. We got, there there were people who knew who Malchus was. They could verify the story of his ear being cut off. John doesn't talk about the healing, but he kind of assumes it, which the other uh, synoptic gospels talk about. But Jesus responds then to Peter, and he says, He commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What a strange answer that seems to be. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, the cup that Jesus must drink is not God killing Jesus. God doesn't do evil. The cup that Jesus drinks, the cup that is so difficult for you and I to accept or understand or comprehend is this. Despite the worst evil that humanity and the devil can throw at Jesus, even at the cost of Jesus' own life, Jesus trusted that God gets the last word. God the Father gets the last word. The cup that Jesus drinks, this is a cup that you and I have to learn to drink as well. Will we trust God in our dire circumstances? Will we trust God in our dire circumstances? Because we know that God gets the last word. Or will we break faith with God? Will we not really trust Him anymore? This is a very old question. 
a question for as long as there have been humans around in the, the way we relate to God. Uh, one of the oldest writings found in our Bible, the, the Hebrew there is very archaic. Uh, it's the story of Job. Job, who God allows Satan to take everything from. At one point, Job, has a, his wife, when everything's gone, even says to him, just curse God and die. Job doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. It, it said he was in full control of this situation. He did not tap out. He did not push the Legion of Army button. I've had it. Take care. Take care of this. See, the thing that Jesus models for us again and again and again, the cup that he drinks from his Father, is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, and how the deck is stacked against you and things have fallen apart, no matter what, you can trust God. That is the hidden music of John's gospel. If you trust God like Jesus trusts his Father, you will live a life of power and purpose. A life filled with love, a life full of the Spirit and all the fruit of the Spirit. Then the detachment of soldiers with his commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. This Annas guy who's mentioned here was the high priest for, usually the high priest appointment was for a lifetime. Uh, but by the time the Romans are there, uh, they changed this. Pilate's predecessor, a guy named Valerius Gratus, around 15 AD, uh, opposed Annas and had him removed as the high priest. But Annas was a crafty guy, and uh, he continued to, in some ways, rule as the high priest because he had no less than five relatives, mostly sons, fill the office of the Jewish high priest. So he is likely the power behind the high priesthood. And he's probably the high priest referred to in verse 19. But John also in this text here reminds us of the prophetic words of Caiaphas, which he had spoken in condemnation of Jesus, in judgment of Jesus, that he must be destroyed. But those words were truer and broader than he could understand. Jesus, whose name means rescuer and deliverer, is the one man who has come to die for his people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went in with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. So after the arrest, they're brought in. Uh, John gets a little wave because he's known, his face is recognized. Peter, not so much. So Peter's outside the courtyard. And uh, 
Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. But when, she, when Peter comes in, when he's passing in there, are you not one of the disciples, are you? You are not one of the disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter, and he replied, I am not. There's also a play on words here. Jesus, who says, I am, he knows his purpose, and he knows his identity. Peter, who says, I am not, and denies who he is and what he is. He has lost his identity. Out of doubt, out of fear. I am not. So John uses his connections to get Peter admitted to the courtyard, but the girl at the door recognizes Peter and she calls him out, and Peter's response is to begin to lie. When you and I get caught in a lie, it always takes us further than we intend for it to go. And you're trying to manage, okay, what did I say? What did I... It's a tough way to live. I've known people who, who habitually lie, and they can't keep it straight, and things unravel. Eventually, they are led into a place where your words and your actions are just ridiculous. And while it's happening, a lot of times we don't realize that while we're in the moment or while we're in the middle of it, but some of us have let habits of deception take root in our lives. And we don't even think about it, but when we are unsure or when we're scared or when we're disappointed or when we're threatened, when we're backed into a corner, we lie. It was cold and the servants of the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep them warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So Peter couldn't hide in the shadows. It was so cold out in that courtyard. He gathers around that little fire with the firelight on his face so that he could be recognized, so that he could be seen. And then John shifts the scene for us. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus is highlighting the point that what he had said and taught, it was open to the public. It was a matter of public record. It wasn't conspiracy spoken in hidden rooms or in back alleyways or in rooftops. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. So apparently he thought that, that Jesus' answer was a little bit cheeky and uh, backhands him or whatever the case may be. I guess this guy thought that Jesus was not being respectful. But really it shows the arrogance of human presumption. And human presumption, the arrogance that we show and the judgments that we make, it's often pretty astounding to me. Even my own self. It's astounding to me the value judgments that I end up making. 
Everyone makes assumptions about who the big man in the room is. Who are the important ones? Who are the ones whose opinions really matter? We come into situations, and we do this as well. We size people up. Where am I at in the social pecking order? It's not, we would never say that. We display at least enough false humility to no good manners not to say that. And yet we kind of size each other up a little bit. We compare each other. Comparing ourselves to one another, it's poison. It's poison for our relationships. The irony of this situation, of course, is this official who strikes Jesus and the pride of the high priest who allows this and accepts this kind of behavior I am the, he shouldn't say, as great as the office of the high priest is, the one they belittle and strike, the one that they treat as the scum of the earth, the one that they treat as a criminal, he's actually God incarnate, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Do you see the irony of what's going on here? The glory of God is hidden in Jesus Christ's humanity. The glory of God is hidden in Jesus Christ's humility. The glory of God hidden in humility is in fact the power that wins hearts and minds for Jesus Christ. See, like the high priests, we contend to try to carry the pretense of our own importance into situations. I think this. I deserve this. I want instant feedback. I want answers. Convince me. And we sit back in the church even. We do this. Convince me and maybe I'll do something. Say something true. Maybe I'll... We try to manage our images and how wonderful we are, but the humility of Jesus, it calls our bluff. In the presence of our humble God, we cannot maintain the illusion of our being the big man in the room. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus does not retaliate by attacking back, but simply raises a question that causes this official to examine his own motives and behavior. Many times the questions Jesus asks, they shine a light on what is going on in our own hearts, for good or for ill. We see this again and again and again throughout the gospel narratives. So like in the beginning of John, you have these disciples of John who are wanting to follow Jesus and they, they, they begin to follow him and Jesus asks them a question, what do you want? What do you want? They say, we want to see where you're staying. And then Jesus says, come and see. So he asks a question that helps them articulate their desire. Mary is outside the tomb later. And Jesus comes to her and asks her a question. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? And she's able to articulate her sadness. 
So now flash back to Peter in the high priest's courtyard. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of these disciples, are you? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servant, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow at that moment. So Peter's lies, they're being compounded. And there's eyewitness testimony placing him at the scene where Jesus was arrested, linking him to the incident of the ear removal and subsequent healing. See, Peter is still telling lies even after he has been caught on camera, so to speak. He can't deny it. We all kind of shake our heads at Peter. Impulsive Peter, ignorant Peter, rash Peter, Peter the liar. And we fail to see that in some ways Peter is an archetype for each one of us. So what have been your rooster crowing moments in your life? the moments where you realize the ways you have denied Jesus by your actions and behavior. Have you had those moments? My advice to you, brothers and sisters, is not to hide from those when God gives you those. Don't spurn it. Don't run from it. Those rooster crowing moments in your life. They're God's grace to us because they wake us up from the insanity that we have been living in. There is healing in tears of repentance. There is healing in tears of repentance. So my last two questions I want to leave with you are this. When the hard circumstances of life come your way, will you show unwavering trust, the unwavering trust of Jesus, or will you break faith with God? And think about what keeps you from trusting in the goodness and the power of God. If you have questions unanswered in your life that, you, that keep you from really trusting God wholeheartedly, you need to spend some time thinking about them. Come talk to people like me and other. You need to get around those things. And then, will you drink the cup of faith in God? Even then the circumstances come out of sideways and horrible things are going on. Will you drink the cup of trusting in God? Even when we stand amidst a world that's gone mad. And then when you do fail and the rooster crowing moments come upon you, will you deny it and run from it or will you accept it and learn from it? When you realize your own complacency and complicity in sin, brokenness, failure, hurting others, and that realization comes to your mind, Will you try to sweep it under the rug? Will you try to run from it? Or will you learn from it and accept it? One of those ways is healthy. It's the path of humility. It'll give you strength and it'll change your life. The other will do more the opposite. I don't know what your needs are this morning or how these words strike you. Uh, but they're good questions for us to ask, I think. And uh, as we are a church, we're trying to grow in love and love for each other and try to figure out how to support each other. 
And so uh, any of our young people who are here, youth especially, who are going to Round Lake, after we have our invitation, we want to invite you to come forward and the elders want to pray over our youth group. Even those, if you're in our youth group and you're not going to Round Lake, come and let, let receive this blessing from the elders. We'll do that after this invitation. But the invitation for us is, if you need the prayers of this church, if you need to talk about these kind of questions and how you can move forward and deal with these things in your life, if you need to put on the Lord in baptism, you have an opportunity to do that while we stand and sing together.